Well, howdy, Calvary Slow. Happy Easter. This is a great day. Um, if you guys are new here, I want to welcome you. Uh, aside from chasing goats out of the building, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I get the great joy of telling you today about Easter, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to do that today from the unique perspective of a guy by the name of John, John the Apostle. He was a good friend of Jesus. He was a guy that kind of grew up in sort of the typical first century. He was like a blue-collar, just regular uh, type of poverty-stricken type person of the first century. He grew up around a lake called Galilee, and he was approached by Jesus at one point of his life to ask by Jesus to follow him, and then John began to follow Jesus. He became what was called a disciple, which was basically a student. He learned from Jesus, he watched Jesus, he saw what Jesus did, he became actually part of even kind of an inner closer type of circle of Jesus' friends. Jesus had 12 apostles, and out of those 12 apostles, there were three of them that were extremely close to Jesus. John happened to be one of them. John was one of the guys that had traveled with Christ. He saw Jesus do all sorts of things, all sorts of miracles. He heard the message that Jesus taught often about the gospel. He heard what Jesus talked about in terms of him one day at some point dying, even though he didn't quite understand it, and rising again, even though he was still somewhat in the dark. John followed faithfully Jesus all throughout Jesus' ministry, which extended for about three years. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus enjoyed a meal with his disciples. John happened to sit in the place of honor, right next to Jesus. When Jesus ultimately was hung on the cross, John was the only male friend of Jesus, male, you know, one of Jesus' friends who happened to be a guy that was hanging around at the foot of the cross. Everybody else was a female or his mom. John was a guy that had close friendship with Jesus. In a lot of ways, he was like Jesus's younger brother. And John was very familiar with all of the types of miracles and ministry that, Je- that Jesus had done throughout his life. And John actually chronicles the story of Jesus in what we now typically call the gospel of John. What I want to do this morning with you guys, I, I want to look at the unique perspective of John about Jesus's life On one particular occasion, when Jesus was coming near the end of his life, prior to him being uh, turned over to the authorities, arrested, and then Jesus would have been crucified. Shortly before that happened, Jesus comes into the city, uh, into an area called Bethany. It was a place where one of Jesus' good friends lived, a guy by the name of Lazarus. And uh, John had two sisters, Mary and Martha. To set the stage for you, the passage is in John chapter 11. I'm going to read you the verse in just a second here, but I'll give you a little bit of the background first. John comes in, Jesus comes into the city, and he realizes that uh, Lazarus has already died. And when Jesus comes into into the region, he's approached by John's sisters or Lazarus's sisters and as he begins to talk with them they're they're frustrated they're bummed because basically according to one of their words they said look Jesus if you had been here my brother Lazarus would not have died there was a faith there was a trust that Jesus would have been capable to actually raise Lazarus from his sickness prior to him actually having to die 
But this was part of Jesus' whole plan. John, the way he oftentimes writes, he writes with sort of a little bit of a twist. In other words, there are little surprises all throughout John's gospel writing. This happens to be one of them. Jesus purposefully delayed his coming into the city of Bethany to hang out with his good friend Lazarus. Why? Because Jesus was going to allow Lazarus to die. Reason, we know, because we have the end of the story, Jesus had another particular miracle up his sleeve that he was going to perform. In this case, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before that happens, Jesus was having dialogue with the two sisters. And that's basically where we pick up the story. I want to read to you one of the most important statements that Jesus makes to these two women, as well as to the others that are hanging around, listening to the message that Jesus has to say. It's the famous passage in John chapter 11, around verse 25 and 26, it says this. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked this question to Martha and Mary, the two sisters of this now dead friend by the name of Lazarus. What I want to do this morning as we look at this little passage is we will take a look at a couple things with regard to this. The first thing that we'll take a look at is that what Jesus is trying to state is that there is a resurrection reality in himself that will take place. He's no doubt referring to something that will happen because of him. That's why he says, if they believe in me, something will happen, something will take place, something will transpire that's akin or closely related or is actually best described as a resurrection, a movement from death into life. That's what Jesus describes it as. The second thing we'll take a look at is that there's a resurrection reality that's potential in you. Should you believe in Christ the way he describes it? The first thing that I want to take a look at, first of all, is the resurrection reality that's in Jesus. Within this, it's basically a double claim. In other words, there's two things that Jesus is trying to convey. He's trying to communicate. Here's what he says. First of all, he says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Now, what you need to understand is Jesus chooses his words carefully. He doesn't say, I'm going to be resurrected, although he will do that. Nor is he saying, I as a teacher will teach you how to be resurrected. He's saying, I am the embodiment of resurrection. In other words, resurrection is me. I am the fulfillment. I am the literal fulfillment of this particular thing. Now, if I could just simply ask the obvious I mean, the reality is what Jesus is basically saying is that I have the ability, I am the ability of conquering death. The first claim, the first statement that I think Jesus is trying to confess or declare is that he is the conqueror of death. To be able to resurrect something is different than to be able to resuscitate something. Jesus is not talking about resuscitation. In other words, taking somebody that's kind of dead and breathing them, or bringing them back to life, or breathing life into them, but he's saying, I take somebody who is completely dead, and bringing them back. And he's saying that power, that essence, that authority, is something that is in me, intrinsic in me. 
It's not something I've got to work for. It's not something I paid for. It is me. I possess the ability and the power and the authority to make this happen because it is in me. So the first thing that Jesus is trying to say is that he is the conqueror of death. Now again, if I can just simply state the obvious or ask the obvious, the reality is this. Who talks like this? I mean, who goes around and says, hey, I am resurrection. I conquer death. But think about that. Throwing that on a resume, sitting down talking, okay, so why would you want employment with us? What have you done? I wrote a book and I've conquered death. I mean, nobody talks like this. People don't talk like this in our culture. I mean, somebody may go around claiming they've been resurrected, all right? I think I've met a couple people like that. I've never believed anybody, all right? However, to go around saying, I'm not just resurrected or going to be resurrected, but to actually make the claim or the statement or the declaration, I am the resurrection, is profound. So what Jesus is trying to declare is that this is in him, that he is able to conquer death. Now I want to point out even further, the way our culture views death, I think has to be addressed. Let me me tell you what I'm talking about. We live in a culture that death is inevitable. Now, we may, because of modern science, be able to prolong life and to just basically hold off the inevitable death for just a little bit longer. But the reality is that everybody in this room, given 100 years from now, will be gone. That's a sobering reality. I've actually done memorial services in this room talking at somebody who had passed away. The reality is it's a sobering truth, but everybody dies. And the way our culture addresses this issue of death is very important, and I want to tell you how we do it. There's two main ways, or two main lenses by which our general populace views death. I like photography. I love photography, actually. And with photography, everything the way that you turn out, or the pictures that you make, or the pictures that you take will be affected, will be impacted by the type of lens that you have on your camera. What I want to try to do for you is I want to help you, first of all, to identify if there are false lenses on the way that you view life, and secondly, try as best as I can, with God's favor and God's enabling, to help you to look at it perhaps in a way that would maybe actually bring hope instead of despair, life instead of death. Does that make sense? So the first way in which our culture traditionally views death is we either A, steer past it, meaning we just ignore it. We do everything that we can to try to just turn our face away from it. We don't want to think about it. We turn away from it. If it comes on in a channel or a television program or a movie, we just don't want to think about it. We try to entertain it out of our minds to remove it. We do everything that's very possible within our own abilities to try to not have to think about it, not have to mention it. And to be quite frank with you is if it does come up in conversations, we become a little bit painfully silent because we just don't want to talk about it. And if we are faced and confronted with it, we just... We get a little bit embarrassed. It's a sense of like, ah, I don't want to talk about this. It's uncomfortable. It's an uneasy subject to even discuss. The second way in which we oftentimes deal with it is we sentimentalize it. Let me tell you what I mean. Rather than simply dealing with the inevitable and trying to avoid the inevitable, what we oftentimes do is we sentimentalize it. Meaning, we'll say things like this. It's just part of the circle of life. 
Death is natural. Death is just the, you know, the, 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 the conclusion of a life well spent. And what I basically want to say to you is this, is that the third lens that I want to present, I want to try to help you to think about, is the way that the Bible addresses the subject matter of death. The way that people who believe in God, we don't ignore it, because it's there. It's there in our face. Secondly, we don't sentimentalize it, because quite frankly, death is our enemy. It is our enemy. This is why Paul the Apostle writes about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. It's not our friend. Don't make friends with it. Don't shake hands with it. This is why Paul gets really emboldened. And he's like, death, where's your victory? It's like Paul is staring death in the face and he's challenging. He's calling it to the octagon. He's like, we are going to the mat. That's where we're going, death. And Paul's not saying that as a man who has authority in himself. He's saying it as a man who has authority because Christ has conquered death. When Jesus states, I am the resurrection, he's basically stating, I have conquered death. So my encouragement to you would be to one, don't just simply ignore it. Don't live in despair. Don't sentimentalize it. Don't shake hands with it. Don't come to grips and just say, it's just a normal thing, because it is not normal. It is an enemy to humanity. It is an enemy to life. This is why when death happens, we always typically say the same thing. We shake our heads in shame, and we're like, ah, so sad. They were just in the prime of their youth, even if they're like 90. Like, dang, too short. They had a lot longer left to live. Yeah, like four months. I mean, the reality is this, is that we just, we, we try as best as we can to either ignore it, to sentimentalize it. But the way that the Bible addresses it is it simply says, no, we don't sentimentalize it. We don't ignore it. We address it, but we address it in a way by which Christ addressed it, meaning Jesus says, I have conquered death by conquering the grave. That's his whole point. What you need to understand really clearly is that sin and death really simply are evil twins that share the same DNA. Milton says this in Paradise Lost, referring to Jesus' death. Here's how he describes it. I love the way he puts it. He says this, this act shall bruise the head of Satan, speaking of his death, crush his strength, defeating sin and death, which are the two arms of Satan. Love that. Sin and death, they go hand in hand. The way that the Bible describes it is this, that sin is in this world as a result of rebellion, but as a result of rebellion and sin is death. Death is the necessary consequence that comes as a result of sin. So here's the deal. Here's the way the Bible addresses death, is it approaches the root, and the root of death is sin. The root of death is sin. Sin is our Basically, sin is this. It's the de-godding of God. If I can just be as simple and as plain with you as this, sin is de-godding. It's the de-godding of God. It means that for me in my life, the way that I think, the way that I approach life, the way that I have sort of my view of this world and the outlook on life, the question is this. Do I live as an end unto myself? That's de-godding God. It's basically saying I don't need God. I'm not dependent upon God. 
I don't need his help. He's done really nothing for me. I've done it all. It is the degauding of God. And that action, that activity will ultimately lead to death. Let's give a round of applause because the heater's finally off. <laughs> Praise God. Does not feel like hell in here anymore. Anyways, the godding of God is what sin is. Sin is ultimately ending and ends up in death. This is why Paul the Apostle would say something like this. In the book of Romans chapter 3 verse 22 he says this. Righteousness. In other words, God's gift. God's favor. God's kindness. God's mercy. God's character. This is what Paul says. God's character, mercy, kindness, favor will be given to you. Here's how. He says... By being counted to us who believe, who trust in Jesus Christ, who raised Jesus from the dead. Here's what Paul says in verse 25. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life, and he was made right. Or, and because of Jesus being raised to God, to the right hand of God, he says he has made us right with God. So Paul addresses both right arm and left arm by saying both sin and death, its partner, have been dealt with through Jesus. Just two days ago on Friday, we celebrated or commemorated the fact that Jesus died. Jesus died. What Paul's saying is that Jesus died for our sins, but Jesus rose again from the dead to demonstrate that God's work is finished, and those who trust in Jesus are made new because sin has been dealt with at its very root. That's really super good news, all right? So the point that I want to make is this, is that by dealing with both of these, it leads to a right relationship with God. That's what he's trying to communicate. By sin being dealt with at the cross, by Jesus rising again from the dead, you've essentially dealt with our two greatest enemies, sin and death. How does that happen? Ultimately through Jesus. That's why when Jesus says to Martha and Mary, I'm the resurrection. I am the resurrection. It comes through me. Life, not just resuscitation, but taking dead people and making them alive. It comes through me. By dealing with the sin that is ultimately foundational to death, death we dealt with. That's his whole point. It's oftentimes been described like this. I want to give you a picture in your mind. It's like a receipt. All right? That's what raising and getting from the dead is about. It's like a receipt. Imagine this. If you go to a store, you buy something, and yet you continue to shop. You need a receipt. Unless, I mean, if you're stopped by somebody who says, did you pay for this? I mean, we're going to arrest you. You have goods in your bag. And what do you do? You whip out the receipt. You're like, you can't arrest me. I got the receipt. The resurrection of Christ is a very bold statement to all of the world that even though our sins put Jesus to death, God raised Jesus from the dead as a gift of life, causing us to recognize that that act 2,000 years ago that we celebrate today on Easter is the receipt. Do you have that receipt? Do you know that receipt? Is it in your life? Do you understand that? So that when you stand before God one day, that you are able to say, 
I got the receipt. I love Jesus. Jesus is my savior. He's not just the one who's taking care of my sin, but I trust in the fact he rose again from the dead. The second thing that Jesus points out, or the second claim, not only one is that he's the resurrection, he's the conqueror of death, the second thing is that he is the giver of life. Notice what Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, and then he says, and I'm the life. The point that I think that Jesus is conveying is this, not only do I conquer death, but I'm also the one that gives life. I give life. I'm the one that is the author of life. I give you life. It's my free gift to you. Imagine it like this. Imagine that all humanity is like a laptop, all right? Like a laptop that's unplugged. For the sake of pointing out the ultimate depravity of mankind, let's just assume for the sake of analogy, the laptop is a PC. With Vista. All right, let's just, let's just for the sake of just analogy, all right, just say that that's what it is. At some point, that battery life will just die. And the battery will die. The, the whole laptop will stop functioning. And no matter what you do, you can't resuscitate it. The only thing that will be able to change it or to change the, the function of it, the fact that it's broken, is either A, putting in a brand new battery, or B, plugging it into the wall. But Jesus comes around, and this is what Jesus does. He says, I've come to give life. I'm going to give you a new battery, but I'm going to also be the power source whereby you will be changed. I think personally, this is one of the reasons why when the church was born, a few 50 days after Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus talks about that experience. He says, when I come, the power of the Holy Spirit will be upon you and you will be my witnesses. He actually identifies the work that will happen in their life as power. The power of God will change. Paul speaks of the power of God over sin. He also describes the power of God over the grave. What we're talking about here is God's intrinsic power being gifted to you. So here's the final question that I want to look at. Is how does all this work out? Well again, in John chapter 11 verse 25, the second part goes like this as it talks about this resurrection reality in you. Just about finished here. Verse 25, it says this. Whosoever believes in me, even though he die, yet he shall live. Even though he die, yet he will live. Jesus loved to speak in what would oftentimes look like paradoxes. This looks like a paradox. How can someone die also live? I think what Jesus is talking about here is a future reality that we typically call the future state of a resurrection. Uh, the book of Daniel, around chapter 12, verse 2, talks about a future resurrection. Uh, the book of Job, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 25, talks about, and in the end, uh, my flesh will see God with my very eyes. I will stand with God in the end. And even though my body die, I will see God. I will be with God I will resurrect. I will be given a new body. This is, I think, talking about a future resurrection. Even though your physical body die, ceases to live, you flatline. You get the idea? You will ultimately live again. You will rise in the resurrection of the last day. Verse 26, Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So again, listen, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die die. 
What I think Jesus is talking about here is not something in the future, but something that happens here, presently. In other words, you won't die, that those who believe in me, they'll never die. So even though our physical body may cease functioning, cease working, I think what Jesus is talking about here, you will have a life inside you that will keep going forever, whether or not you're in this body or you be given a new body. Your spirit, your soul, however you want to look at it, will continue to live, and that life begins now, presently, here, in this current state of reality. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Okay? Jesus gives life, and that's what he's trying to say, and it begins now. It begins here. That's what Jesus wants to bring. The last thing is this. Jesus poises a question to these two ladies. Here's what he says. Do you believe in this? Jesus poises this question to them. I know a lot of times people get a little bit uncomfortable when people are like, I don't like to be forced to make an opinion. Well, apparently Jesus didn't understand that. He was an evangelical, all right? He just didn't get this. He's just like going around, hey, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? I'm the resurrection life. Do you believe me? Do you follow me? Do you love me? That was Jesus. He's like, do you guys believe in me? Do you believe this? Do you know this? Do you, is this something that is a part of your framework of thinking? Is this a lens by which you view the world? Is this a framework by which you think, by which you view everything else through? He poises the question, do you believe this. I want to finish with this thought, and I want to talk briefly about belief and faith. Because look, the bottom line is this, guys. Every one of us has faith in something. Every one of us, we believe in something. When we talk about faith, we're not talking about something that's abstract, that's out there, that is only relegated to somebody that's in sort of a religious society or community. We're talking about the fact that everybody believes in something. Everybody has some sort of a guiding governing principle by which we view life, by which we live according to, it's sort of like a guiding principle by which everything else lines up according to. That's the way that we live, every one of us. So it's not an issue of, you know, some believe, some don't believe. It's really an issue of what do you believe? What governs your life? What ultimately gives you sort of the trajectory of your life that propels you, that causes you to think? We all have faith. The question is, is do you have faith in what Jesus said? And not even just in what Jesus said as if he was just some sage or a teacher, but in what Jesus did for you. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you trust him? Because only Jesus, in fact, I just want to say this. What I'm trying to really point out is this. When we talk about plausible worldviews, in other words, If we were to stack up everybody's view of the world, how we view culture, how we view society, how we view life, how we deal with death, how we deal with these matters of life and death. What I'm trying to say is this, is the Christian worldview, the Christian perspective, what Jesus is trying to uh, state here, it's very plausible. It's very plausible. Because it leads away from despair that comes from just ignoring death, and it leads away from deception. We just constantly live throughout this entire life just avoiding the inevitable. Americans have gotten this down to an art. As Americans, 
we deny the presence of evil. We do. Until evil slaps us in the face or crashes into two twin towers. And when that happens, all of a sudden everybody stops and they're like, that's evil. Prior to that, nobody believes in evil. We just sort of push it out of existence. We ignore the fact that it's there. We just don't even want to be confronted with it until we are forced to think about these things. And what I'm trying to say is that the Christian perspective says we don't ignore or deny evil. We recognize that evil exists. We recognize it's present. Perhaps it's most eerily present right here. And yet Christ comes, sent from God into this world as a missionary, as its creator. It's kind of like undercover boss. You have program? He's like the undercover boss. Created everything. No one even knows who in the world he is, except for a few select. And he comes in, and he's really communicating, not just by word, but ultimately by some total of word. His life is the word, the living, active word that lays his life down, dealing with our double foe, sin and death. And the Christian perspective basically points out very clearly that the answer lie in God's servant, his humble servant, Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, to bring about God's principle in our hearts so that we can know life and live. Jesus came not to take away life. That's the biggest lie that oftentimes people succumb to, is that Christianity is all about taking life. It's not. Religious legalism is. And sometimes that masquerades as Christianity. We've all met them. Sometimes we're them. And the reality is we have to identify that and recognize that. But Jesus himself comes and says, I've come myself to give life, and to give life more abundantly. I finish with this. Christianity has been oftentimes described as the relationship with God that has to do with personal pronouns. I'll tell you what I mean. It's not enough for you to just cognitively say, I believe Jesus lived, died, rose again, maybe coming back, sure. I, I believe that. No, 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 you have to be able to say, I believe that Jesus lived for me, died for me, rose for me, and will come back again for me. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle was trying to state when he describes the fact that Jesus Christ did all of these things for him, on account of us, for us, for you, for me. So I finished with Jesus' question. Do you believe in him? Listen to what Rene Descartes said. I have concluded the evident existence of God. He says, and that my existence depends entirely on God in all the moments of my life. And I do not think that the human spirit may know anything with greater evidence and certitude. Probably more well-known is C.S. Lewis, as he says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, that it has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I hope you guys know Jesus today. 
Jesus is not a religion. If your taste of Christianity has been a religious moralist, I apologize. I wish it had not been the case. What you need to meet is the risen Christ who gives life, who doesn't sit and take life and judge you for what you're doing, but he releases, he gives life. Yes, he convicts of sin because sin is what brings death. But that's a world apart from somebody going around looking for everything that's wrong with you and telling you what's wrong and trying to make you accountable to them. You are accountable to God. And God, through Jesus coming into this world, deals with our double enemy, sin and death, by feeling its weight, its fullness on the cross, suffering, dying as we commemorated on Good Friday, but on the third day, today is what we celebrate, he rose again for you. Do you have that receipt? Is it your Savior? Is it your Christ? Did he die your death? Did he live your life? Did he rise for you? We're going to respond right now. In the book of Revelation, around chapter 12, there's this great little passage. Worship team's got to come on up. There's this great little passage at the very end. I'll read it to you. Love this. Because in the very end, when everybody's around the throne, Jesus is central over all things. What basically transpires is you have this uh, innumerable, innumerable host of people worshiping God, recognizing Christ for what Christ has done. And basically what takes place is they recognize that victory and triumph and conquering comes through Jesus. And it basically says that they triumphed, they conquered, they were victorious because of the Lamb of God who was slain. That's Old Testament language for saying God's Son, Jesus, suffered horribly for you and yet rose again for you and is now seated on the right hand of God ultimately, supremely over all things. And it basically goes on to say this, that those who recognize this, those who understood the fact that Christ is all triumphant, it says this, it says, therefore, as he describes, therefore, they rejoice with loud singing. We will respond to God today by singing. Today, above all days, should cause us to be not a little, but a lot Pentecostal. Okay, a lot, because Jesus is alive. It's okay, Calvary Slow, to get very excited. Not just a little, but very excited, because your God loves you so much, he sent his son to bear your sin on your behalf for all who trust in him. He gives life at the expense of laying his down. And what we did to God, we killed his son. God in grace and mercy and triumph raised Jesus for you. And we get to rejoice. This is great news. We're going to sing. We're going to give tithes and offerings to Jesus. If you're one of our guests, keep your pocketbook closed. We don't want any of your money. We want you to know Jesus. This is an opportunity for us who love Jesus, who are part of this church, who maybe love what God's doing in this church, to give back joyfully, generously, because God is joyful and God is generous, and the greatest gift he gave us was his son. We'll sing. We'll partake of communion. We have 
communion elements over there and in the back, four little areas all in each of the corners for you to partake of that as you remember what God did for you through sending his son, dying, rising again from the dead so that we can celebrate joyfully. If you're not a Christian here today, the greatest way for you to respond would be for you to trust, put your faith in Jesus loves you, died for you. I hope you know that today. I hope you come to know that today. And if you don't know that today, that you would come to see that Jesus is even greater than any other faith system that either we've created ourselves or has been handed down to us through the ages since the beginning of time from the garden. I hope you know the grace, beauty, glory of God through his Son and Savior, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead for you. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for rising for us. Thank you for giving us life. And thank you, Father, that the gift of God comes by just humbly trusting and loving you. We don't deserve this. God, it was you who pursued us. We ran, we fled. And yet God, in great love, you kept pursuing. Some of those are even here right now whom you love, you pursued. God, that you want to open their eyes and cause them to stop running and to confess their sin and to ask you to wash them and cleanse them to be made right in relationship with their creator. We sing, we rejoice, we give, we partake of communion. All out of response to your initiation.